Thanks. Thank you. Well, we come to this uh, last instalment. It's a great privilege to be trusted to open it up to you. Let us bow for prayer. Uh, dear Lord, as we come to the end of our journey through 1 Samuel this morning, we continue to echo the prayer of young Samuel from those early chapters of this amazing book. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, as we uh, broach this last uh, section, it's helpful to recall some of the aspects of this fascinating but troubled journey that we've explored together. The book's backdrop had been the closing words of uh, Judges 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so as we entered into the text, we saw immediately that was the case. We saw a devout man, Elkanah, yet with two wives and a household in conflict. Eli the priest with two sons who share his vocation, but who care nothing for the Lord or his people. Scoundrels who abuse the sacrifices and women for their own pleasure. Later we observe the Israelites, this ancient people of God, turning from looking to God for their rescue and their future and turning to the nations and saying, we want a king like the nations. And then we've watched as that king that God had given them permission to have, a king like the nations, we watched the first Messiah, King Saul, fail to align himself with the Lord's purposes. And so David was anointed as Messiah number two. He was God's chosen appointment. And then we follow the developing and complex story of conflict and succession. As Messiah one, Saul sought to destroy Messiah two, David. But we've been more than observers on this journey, haven't we? In these chapters, we've regularly recognised our own footsteps. We also live in a society where everyone does as they see fit. Increasingly, Christian values are jettisoned by a world that doesn't believe God has much involvement anymore. We play life on an oval with no boundary markers, so no one actually knows what's in and what's out. We experience opposition, along with all the other troubles and trials of human existence in a community that persistently turns its back on its creator. Like the characters in Samuel, we have also been called to follow. We're called to follow in a sin-saturated society, which means we'll endure all manner of broken world experiences as the New Testament repeatedly reinforces. For example, in James 1-2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice it says whenever, not if you face trials. So how do you and I respond in the troubles and trials that the world throws at us? When family and friends reject our faith, when we're ridiculed for holding to Christian values, 
when we're betrayed by our spouse or a work colleague, when a link to an inappropriate web page pops up in an unsolicited email, how do we respond? When our children or parents make choices that oppose Jesus, when we're diagnosed with a terminal diagnosis or a chronic painful illness, when an accident leaves you paraplegic or worse, when a child, a spouse or close friend prematurely dies, how do we respond when peers urge us to engage in activities which Jesus would frown upon? What about when a loved one is sent to prison, literal or metaphorical, in terms of them experiencing dementia or Alzheimer's? How do we respond when we come to retirement and discover we appear to have lost our purpose, our direction and our identity? What about when a fellow believer hurts us intentionally or unintentionally? How do we respond? How do we respond when we're responsible for passing on a genetic disorder to our children? How do or how will we respond to the vast array of real and potential troubles and trials that crash onto our shores. Today, as we observe the final and vividly contrasting episodes of Saul's decline and David's incline to kingship in these last four chapters of 1 Samuel, we'll discover both what to do or how, not to, what to, how to respond and how not to respond to life's challenges. Firstly, then, let us look at following the wisdom of the world, Saul's demise from verses 28 and 31. Now, like all good storytelling, the final scenes of 1 Samuel create a tension for us. We already know from chapter 27 uh, that uh, David, to escape the persistent and relentless approach of uh, Saul to try and kill him, has escaped to the enemy to the Philistine territory. He's now living with permission in Ziglag under the authority of the king of Gath, Achish, one of the kings of the Philistines. David has been doing raids and uh, getting um, goods but, um, and saying he's been attacking Judah, but of course he's been attacking the other enemies and ensuring that no one could find out. And Achish has been bluffed. By the time we get to chapter 28, Achish has now made, made David his bodyguard. He's now his right-hand man. But the Philistines are now gathering together all of the cities of the Philistines to fight a great war against Israel and to push them back and to seek to, king, to kill King Saul. And David is part of the troop because he's the bodyguard of one of their kings. So both David and Saul are in life-threatening situations. David might get found out. Saul is being threatened by a massive army. How will this sticky situation unfold? Now we'll have to wait for David's story to be unraveled. 
But Saul's response to this crisis is developed in chapter 28. But before they even get into that detail, we're given two bits of very important information to note. In verse 3, now Samuel was dead and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. And that's meant to be understood as under the authority of Samuel. These two bits of information are important for we're being reminded here that Saul no longer has a word of the Lord. He no longer is the genuine king because there's no prophet, there's no voice of God being spoken into his life from the true king, the Lord of heaven and earth. But Saul had in his better day under that lordship, under that leadership of Samuel, had kicked out all those who were seeking to contact the dead and seek for guidance, divination by other means than the Lord himself. If only Saul had remained obedient to the Lord's word, how different things could have been. But rather he had chosen the path of human logic and wisdom. And we've looked at the details of his failures in chapter 13 and 15. But chapter 8 in verse 5 reveals that this present crisis was now too much for King Saul. He had lost his capacity to lead his people So we read, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid and terror filled his heart. Effectively, his kingdom was ended without divine guidance. King Saul was like a ship adrift at sea without a rudder. As we all are when we fail to remain people of the word and seek God's wisdom. Given this history, Saul's now desperate desire for a word from the Lord, noted in verse 6, was just that, desperate and understandably fruitless. The Lord was silent. Saul was too far gone. Saul then, like a king of all the nations and now utterly despairing, turns to the guidance system of the nations, a spiritist. Someone Saul had earlier thrown out of Israel. This is a measure of his moral vacuum, his despairing faith and his failed life. Interestingly, Ephesians 2 verse 12 provides a sort of spiritual description of where Saul finds himself in this part of the story. Having no hope and without God in the world. Saul, of course, wants to see Samuel. He wants help. And so the fact that he goes to a spiritist and asks for Samuel to be called up, and God gives permission, interestingly, that Samuel does appear, but we're not to think this spiritist actually has great supernatural power, for she is just as shocked as anyone that this actually happens. We might recall in the New Testament that Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So God allows Samuel to surface. Saul doesn't personally see Samuel though. He will not have that privilege, but he is allowed to hear the voice through the spiritus. And it just is a reinforcement of what God has already told him. 
in 1 Samuel 15. He will die. His kingdom will be taken from him. The king, like all the nations who follows the wisdom of the nations, will die. They will not be successful. In the hopelessness of Saul, we should see the hopelessness of being separated from Christ, of being without God in the world. Does that describe your state of mind at the moment? Or do you find yourself drifting away from the word of God? Has it become a casual reading from time to time rather than central aspect of your spiritual life? It doesn't have to remain like that. Because in Christ, as Ephesians 2 goes on to say, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. We don't have to live without the word of God. We don't have to live without God in our lives. Jesus has become a catalyst. He's the, he's the, the centre of which moves us back into relationship with God. Well, the last chapter of Saul's kingship and disappointing life is written in chapter 31. The word of the Lord, as always, proves true. Israel is overrun by the massive Philistine army. Saul's sons are killed, including the valiant and godly Jonathan, David's best mate. Saul is mortally wounded. His armour bearer refuses to run him through because like David, he will not kill the Lord's anointed. That must be in God's hands. And so Saul in desperation falls on his sword. It is a tragic, tragic picture of a tragic, tragic life. Life without the word of God. It reinforces what we've heard before from Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Take a moment then to reflect on the consequences of following the wisdom of the world, of having a king like all the nations. Saul's utter despair, his loneliness, his defeat, his death, and even after death, his body is humiliated by the Philistines. He is a person without hope in the world. Human wisdom ultimately miserably fails. I mean, he'd been called up on purpose to kick out the Philistines. That's why Saul had been raised up. This was the enemy pressing in on Israel. He was the answer, the answer they looked for from the nations. And what had happened? At the end of his life, the Philistines take over the cities in Israel. There's nothing has changed. Follow the ways of the world and you will not, you will not have success ultimately. But the worst tragedy of all is that Saul's disobedience to the word leading to failure and defeat spilled over into the ridicule of the Lord. Saul's body is taken and a Philistine gospel is emerges. The good news of this gospel was that the king of God's people was dead and it was celebrated in the marketplaces and the temples of the pagan gods. 
the Lord was being ridiculed as being defeated by the gods of the Philistines. John Woodhouse makes an insightful application. The Philistine gospel is still to be heard whenever human beings believe they have triumphed over God. Every mockery of God and his people, every expression of scorn towards the Lord Jesus and his followers is a version of the Philistine gospel. My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, make no mistake When we, in either word or work, contradict the life that reflects the generosity and kindness of Jesus, we can, like Saul, bring dishonour to the Lord Jesus, to his name. And we create barriers rather than bridges to the gospel of grace. So where do we find a gospel that answers the false gospel that God is a joke gospel of the Philistines? The answer comes in the gospel of the true Messiah, Jesus, foreshadowed in the life of King David. So we move from the negative, how to face troubles, following the wisdom of the world, to how to face troubles, following the wisdom of the word, David's delight. There's a huge contrast, isn't there, between David and Saul. We've seen that as we've journeyed through these chapters. Let me try and help grasp the fundamental difference. I wonder if any of you have gone to Ikea and you've found a wardrobe, you think that just fits in that place we need. And it's nice and rectangular, looks simple to build. And so you go downstairs with your trolley and you get a flat pack with lots of screws and bolts and hinges and door handles. And it does have a, a little bit of paper that has the contents to make sure you've got all you need. And it's also got instructions. Let me just do a bit of a straw poll test here. How many of you are the sort of people that don't need the instructions? Put your hand up. Okay, we know who the souls are amongst us. How many of you are the Davids? How many of you refer to that instruction every step of the way? That's me. I know I'm no good without it. Well, they're more like David. Because, see, David is always referring. He wants guidance. He wants to make sure he stays on track with the Lord's way. He wants to make sure he's assembling God's flat pack for life, God's way. Let's see how this works out in 1 Samuel 29 to 30. We left David in what appeared a sticky predicament. He was aligned with the Philistine king of Gath of Achish. He was his right-hand man. The Philistines were about to attack King Saul's Israelite army. What David didn't know, but we know, that David has just been told he will die in this battle. Saul has done everything, David has done everything in his power to, not to kill Saul, even when he had opportunity. He'd been fighting for his people, even then he's in the Philistine territory, he'd still been fighting for Israel. Now he was lined against Israel and against King Saul. There's little doubt that David's intent would be to switch sides and give a victory to the people of God and to protect Saul again. But God knew what was going on. And of course, the Philistine armies, the other leaders and commanders, knew that David had a reputation Saul may have killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. They didn't trust David. 
And so they persuaded Achish to send him away. And so David was sent away, 60 miles away, 996 kilometres roughly. He was sent to the south, back to Ziglag. David would have no involvement in Saul's death. The Lord made sure of that. He was providentially in charge, as always. Well, the arrival in Ziglag uh, saw David and his troops in deep distress for their town had been burnt down. There was no, no evidence of any of their members of their family, so they knew they hadn't been killed. They'd been taken away. Their property had been taken, their herds and cattle and everything they owned. But griefs quickly turned to bitterness as we read in verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. See, David was the one that brought them to Ziglag. He was the one that had moved them out of Israel. So they had to blame somebody in their frustration and so they blamed him. How would David respond to this crisis of faith? Let's see how he responds. David found strength in the Lord his God. And the verses that follow tell us how that worked itself out, how that played itself out. David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. We've already learned in the story, this is the means of, we don't know how it works, uh, but we know it's the, it's the, the compass for Israel. It gives them direction. It tells them which path to take. It's where God speaks to them. Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, the Lord answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. While Saul was visiting a medium, David inquired of the Lord. David didn't hesitate to then obey the Lord's promise, immediately chasing after the marauders. However, the exhausting 96-kilometre, two- or three-day trip to Ziglag had taken its toll on some of the troops. It was a fairly incredible fast pace that they journeyed. And so 200 find themselves exhausted and unable to continue. So they are left behind, and we discover later, with some of the baggage and the food stocks that they were carrying with them. And the 400 continue on. Providentially, God provides them with an abandoned Egyptian slave from the marauders. After being assured he won't be killed, he tells them the trajectory, the pathway of this marauding party, and they quickly catch up with them. Uh, they are just enjoying the spoils of war. They are drinking and reveling. They're not in any sort of state to do a battle. And so David and his 400 men quickly overrun them and get back all their families, and even additional bounty from their other places that they had raided. And they return. When they find themselves back with the other 200, the troublemakers of the 400 uh, quickly jack up, and David has to deal with another problem, another problem of living in a broken, fallen world, a There are too many who want to say, no, the 200 didn't fight the battle. They don't get the bounty. They can take their kids and their family and get out of here. We're not, we're not giving them any of the spoils of war. They didn't fight in the battle. But 
David's response reveals that unlike Saul, he was not a take-take-take king, but a give-give-give king. He follows the generosity of his Lord. So we read verses 23 to 24. No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. David made this a statute, an ordinance for Israel from that day to this. We see David as the peacemaker, even calling these rabble-rousers to be brothers, to try and enfold them in the family. Brothers, don't be like this. He insists that the spoils of war were not theirs. They were a gift from the Lord. He insists that greed and selfishness are an unacceptable response to God's gift. To forget grace is to forget God. Finally, David establishes a radical principle of equity. Yes, the 200 had had an easier load than the 400 who went into battle. But grace is never about fairness. Grace isn't earned. It is always a gift of God. And gifts of God must be shared. Now we know that chapter 21, the last chapter, and chapter 29 and 30 are simultaneous. They're going on at the same time. And so when David declares, unknowing himself, that all will share alike and makes this a... A statute, he's making his first statute as the new king of Israel because Saul is already dead. The first law is one of generosity. This incident and David's response to it point to the kind of king he was to be and the kind of beginning, a radical principle of grace and generosity that should mark the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God. That was to be established. Let it also be something that reigns in our day. May generosity and grace ooze out of us at every turn. May generosity and grace mark all of our relationships. Today we've noted how Saul was Lord less and David Lord full. Saul's default is to follow the wisdom of the world. Human logic, self-interest, superstition, anything but attend to the word of the Lord. He's been a true reflection of a king like the nations and the outcome had been Saul's demise. David's default was rather to follow the wisdom of the word. He frequently seeks the mind of the Lord. He obeys the word immediately He acknowledges the Lord at almost every turn and embraces the values of the Lord by establishing generosity and grace as the foundations of Israel's life together. The outcome, David's delight. Unlike the kings of the nations, Israel's kings were not autonomous. They were called to follow, to follow the Lord. That's what we've kept seeing over and over again, hence the title of our series. 
The word, word of the Lord was to be the king's compass, the guide to his steps. Or if you prefer, the word of the Lord is the table of contents and instructions for God's flat pack of a God-honouring life. Is that the sort of life we're constructing? Are we attending to its teachings and we make ethical decisions when we think about how we'll spend our money or how we will face the next trouble that crashes at our door? 1 Samuel has over and over again reminded us that we are called to follow. Of course, we live in the glorious light of the last Messiah, King Jesus, the one who perfectly demonstrated what the call to follow demanded. As the dark shadows of the cross and evil rose, he bowed the knee in the Garden of Gethsemane and declared, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. The thought of the cross was overwhelming. The thought of being separated from his father was beyond comprehension. He wanted out of this, yet his final words in that prayer, not what I will, but what you will. And that surrender of the last Messiah to the word of the Lord overflowed in the rescue of the world from sin, death and hopelessness. The great Easter events that we'll turn to next weekend. But let us also recall that while King Jesus walked our planet and the grime of our streets gathered on his feet, he spoke words of wisdom about the essence of discipleship. Come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And the father of glory's words from the Mount of Transfiguration still echo across the centuries. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here in this auditorium and at home in your lounge rooms, we are called to follow Jesus and to love the world that doesn't yet do that. Let us pray. If you'd like to join me, there'll be a prayer on the screen, I think. you'd like to join me in this prayer I invite you to do so father without you we cannot follow you so mercifully grant that your holy spirit will in every way direct and rule our hearts so that we do not follow the world's wisdom but follow your wisdom for the advancement of your gospel and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord amen